You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. As always, at the start of a new session, we're going to invite the Holy Spirit. You can't do it enough, right? There's, not too, there's no too much inviting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so again, if you're hearing this and every time you're like, ah, but I don't even know what that means, or it's kind of weird, it's awkward, or it's too much, like, don't worry about it. We're just practicing. We're just, we're just practicing what it means to invite the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray. Make the space as you need to. Pops in your head, write it down. Come back to these things later. And we'll see what God brings us to. So, Father God, we do thank you that you are God and you are good. We do thank you that you have given us this space and this time, that you've woke us up a little bit with humor. And we do just pray for what we're stepping into now. You know the timing. You know the content that we need to press into, the content we don't need to press into, stuff that might not even be on the slides. So we want to release all this to you. Say, here we are. And trust you in that. And we want to invite the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space, acknowledging our limitations and your lack of limitations. And we want to show our presence and willingness by just creating silence now. So be honored and we are listening. So this time is yours, we are yours. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, and we thank you for how you're going to move. Let's pray in his holy name, amen. I got a text or something, some notification. I'm going to see if it was the Holy Spirit. Nope, just a notification that my son needs to be picked up from the Boys and Girls Club. Unless there is some theological, no, I'm not going to pull anything from it. So, you see I've got written here Acts, First and Second Peter. Acts is more indirect. We've, we've done our deep dive of Acts, but because of some of the Peter things that we're going to be talking about are from Acts, we're not done with Acts in that sense. But the hope is uh, either today or today and first part of tomorrow, we're going to explore first and second Peter. So we have welcomed the Spirit. 
Speaking of the Spirit, let's talk about Peter pre-Spirit. Who was this Peter? So we've got Simon, Simeon, Cephas, Petras. He has a lot of names, right? But there's that classic passage where Jesus gives him that name of rock. And this becomes a big part of how we know him. We talk about Peter, Petras, Simon Peter, Simon Petras. And so whoever he was before, we see already pre-spirit this shaping of this identity that Jesus sees in him, that God knows he created him for, that the spirit wants to bring out. Peter was a Jewish fisherman in Bethsaida. As we talk about, he was uneducated, possibly married or widowed, because we hear that story about his mother-in-law being healed. We don't hear a lot about a wife, but if you have a mother-in-law, usually those pieces go together. He was called by Jesus to be a fisher of men. He witnessed and performed miracles as a disciple. It was a far cry from catching fish, something very different. So already, his understanding of reality is being shifted. His understanding of who he is, who God is, what's possible, is being changed day by day, month by month, year by year as he walks with Jesus. And then he has this beautiful moment. Who do you say that I am? You're the son of God. And Jesus says, it wasn't flesh and blood that told you this. It was, that God, it was God that gave you this revelation. So he is now able to hear God in, in ways he didn't know he could. And he didn't really realize it. He was just answering Jesus' question. And so when Jesus pointed this out, hey, by the way, you know, somebody didn't tell you this. You didn't just think this up. That's the spirit. Like, whoa. <laughs> this changes how I understand learning, how I understand processing, how I understand logic. He had the privilege of being in this inner circle with Jesus. Just a few of them getting to experience some really unique things like the, you know, the transfiguration. Small thing, right? Jesus suddenly being transfigured before their eyes. So much so that they're like, let's, let's build tents here. Like, we, let's stay in this moment. Like, I just witnessed something that I don't even know how I'm going to be able to explain it. Nobody's going to believe me when I tell them what I've seen. He's seen amazing things to this point. Thousands being fed with just five loaves and two fish. This, though... He could never have imagined, never have imagined. I see that bamboo. He's also told on this rock, I will build my church. And he denied Jesus. I took a turn. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Bam. Denied Jesus. But he was restored by Jesus in a very beautiful way. So what we get from this is that Peter had an awareness. When he meets Jesus and Jesus invites him to come, what does he say? Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He was aware of his brokenness. He was aware of it. So was Jesus. That's why Jesus said, cool, come on, let's go. He had a rash faith with limits. So in some ways it was good, right? He was the only one that jumped out of that boat. It was a rash faith. There's something that he believed in. He just jumped in it before he really thought about it. The limits part came when he thought about it. <laughs> and it did not make sense anymore. 
he had a sensitivity to the Spirit. He didn't realize it, but he was able to have that moment where he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It did not come from him, did not come from others. Somehow there was a sensitivity in him that he was able to receive that from a supernatural source. He was bold. Can be a good trait. Or Jesus can be washing your feet and you say, you will never wash my feet, Jesus. Never. I'm telling you what to do and what not to do. Pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Again, this was shortly after he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. <laughs> like just verses later, he rebukes Jesus. Jesus, that's a bad plan. That's bold. Telling the Messiah and the Son of the living God that he has a bad plan. <laughs> that's really bold. And it's, sometimes boldness can look good. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Others might not be saying it, but I'm, I'm ready. Now, what we know is he was and he wasn't, right? And he was broken. He was a broken person. He denied Jesus because in his brokenness, he feared death. He feared loss of reputation. He feared his plans for Jesus would fall apart. So I want to sit with this for a moment, and then I want to go to the next slide because, well, because here's the deal. We can find pieces of ourselves in some of these qualities, right? Maybe there's some of you that are like, I mean, I really feel like I'm tracking with Peter most of the time. And others that maybe you never really felt like you connected with Peter, but some of these things, at the very least, we're all dealing with brokenness, <laughs> right? Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on the outer garment for he had removed it and jumped into the sea. Does anybody know when this is? Mm -hmm. So he's denied Jesus. Jesus has come back and they're fishing. Uh, other versions, I don't know if this version of it says it, but they're just not having a great night for catching fish and Jesus helps them to catch a whole lot of fish. And, but once he realizes Jesus, Jesus said, hey, I fixed some breakfast. He jumps out of that boat and swims. He's not holding back. When they had finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he answered. You know I love you. Jesus replied, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he answered. You know I love you, Jesus told him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was deeply hurt that Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? Lord, you know all things, he replied. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There's this beautiful restoration. Did Jesus know that Peter loved him? Yeah, like he knows all things. It's clear that Peter loves him. Like he's deeply hurt because he does love Jesus. And Jesus is doing something really beautiful because he knew what Peter needed in this moment. He knew what the restoration needed to look like. He knew the power of that repetition to this guy who had denied him three times, who now had the opportunity to affirm his love three times, the opportunity to flesh out what it means to feed and to shepherd the sheep, 
Jesus knew what he was doing. He was bringing a deep restoration. This wasn't like an apology. Uh, okay, we're good now. This was something deeper that Peter was experiencing pre-spirit. Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and walked where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after he said this, he told him, follow me. So pre-spirit, pre-denial, Jesus is giving him a heads up of what his death is going to look like. This is, I mean, this is rare. But this is huge. This is something Peter would remember throughout his life at pivotal moments, maybe even at the final moments. Maybe this would bring him peace. Because whereas imminent death could bring fear, he might at that moment remember Jesus' words and say, wait, Jesus told me this would happen. So I don't have to be afraid because this isn't news to Jesus. This isn't unexpected. This was part of the plan. So maybe I can have a boldness like Stephen did right now in this moment as I'm about to die. And then in Acts, we see what we talked about earlier, pre, pre-spirit. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, and then he starts to speak in ways he never did on a boat catching fish. So we tend to make broad sweeps of Peter oftentimes when we're talking about him, when there's sermons about him. So sometimes it's overemphasizing his flaws. Oh, Peter. Peter was rash and made a bunch of mistakes. Oh, right? Like we'll overemphasize that. Or, and, and when we do that, by the way, sometimes it creates a safe barrier because then we're not as bad as like Peter because I would never deny Jesus. <laughs> like, right? It creates a barrier for us, keeps us safe. Or on the flip side of it, we exaggerate his saintliness beyond our capacity. You know, Peter of Acts, who is far beyond us. And I could never talk before the teachers of law like that. I, I, I stumble over my words. But Peter, as he noted multiple times in Acts, was a person like us. He's a person like us. His humanity and the Spirit's capacity reveals what's possible for us. So Peter isn't this wretch, this saint. He is a person like us who was chosen by Jesus, who was filled with the Spirit and invited to things that he would never have chosen, would never have asked for or imagined because it was the Spirit that was at work within him. So who is Peter's post-Spirit? He's able to do things he couldn't prior Speaking in tongues, languages he hadn't sat down to learn. Speaking beyond his education. He was experiencing fruit that was abundantly more. Thousands were added to the church after he talked. <laughs> There's powerful community that developed that was more robust than they could have ever have known. He had audience with leaders he may never have encountered before. And his purpose and destination had shifted drastically from I'm just going to be a good fisherman and catch fish and feed my family to I'm going to follow Jesus. And then we're going to bring Israel back to its right place to now he's willing to die for the sake of Jesus. It's not self for, uh, self-preservation or power anymore. That's driving them. Got to remember those themes, y'all. The spirit is real and at work. The good news is for all and to all the world. 
And the invitation is to be a unified church. These themes are going to come up in Peter's stories and in First and Second Peter. So, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So again, their prayer was not, oh man, they're threatening us. God, take away the threats. God, protect us from them. Like, those are legitimate prayers. We prayed those prayers when threats were against us. That's not the prayer they prayed. Grant us boldness so that you can do what you need to do. Here we are. It's a very different prayer than what pre-spirit Peter might have prayed. We see something else post-spirit in Peter. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. So remember, we talked about Peter having this capacity for boldness. And there are times where he used this gift of boldness in wrong ways. But now the Spirit was using this gift for boldness in important ways. This was a sin against the Spirit. They, you're not lying to man, you're lying to the Spirit. And the Spirit needed Peter, wanted to equip Peter to call that out boldly. We're going to nip this in the bud right now. What's happening here, if it continues... It's going to disrupt and destroy the fabric of this community. The ability to trust God for provision. The ability to care for others. It's going to come in, like we talked about grumbling, little weeds that grow and grow until it's something you can't yank out anymore. So the Spirit used the boldness that God had designed in Peter to call out this sin boldly. And people were shook up. A great fear came upon all who heard it. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This fisherman, his shadow was healing people. People were coming from all over just to experience that healing. This is post-spirit Peter. His shadow didn't do anything before. <laughs> didn't do anything before, and now his shadow even has power through the Spirit. How crazy is that? Even his shadow had spiritual power. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, 
Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. At threat of arrest and, and beatings and possibly death, the spirit freed them and said, all right, go on back there. Keep on doing what you're doing. And they did. He didn't run. When he was faced with the same threats, when Jesus was being beaten, he said, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. And now he's saying, cool. All right, I'm going to leave this prison. I'm sure I'll be thrown back into it. Let's go. Not because Peter was something. It was because of the spirit within Peter. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, who, as we remember, was a teacher of Paul, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. So all the people respected and honored this guy. Said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. This is, dude's got wisdom. It's like, look, if it's from man, it's going to fall apart. If it's from God, you can't stop it. And in your efforts to stop it, you might actually oppose the God that you are saying you are here to serve. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the disciples, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So this Peter guy, this Peter guy who was so different just years before, at the threat of imprisonment, beating, death, is boldly continuing to teach and preach that Christ is Jesus. They say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is when we have the issue with the widows and what Peter is realizing is a honing of what God's called him to. This, this providing of the food is important, but I have a sense in my spirit that that's not what I've been called to in this moment, that God is calling me and us to devote ourselves to prayer devote ourselves to the word. So this is a beautiful moment when you're, when you feel a, a honing of your calling. This, by the way, is a whole other topic we could jump into calling because I think we misunderstand it most of the time. God, tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. What job am I supposed to have? What, what ministry am I supposed to do? Like calling, we are called to love God and love others. We're called to seek God first. But sometimes in certain seasons, God might call us into a space. I shared yesterday that sometimes we are called into a certain space, and then that can become the thing. And then we protect that ministry or that job or that role. So in this moment, it's not that Peter was knowing for all time he was called to this specific thing, because what we see is the role that he is in at this moment does shift when he is called to serve as a missionary, right? He is no longer in this leadership role. He is still praying and ministering the word, but is in a very different way than what he is understanding in this moment. Now, at this time, when Stephen is killed shortly after, Philip, one of the seven, goes out and he gets things started in Samaria. So that uh, we end up seeing Peter in there. But remember, again, Jews and Samaritans avoid each other, has significant theological qualms. So Peter might not have chosen 
to go there. But now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So now Peter has left Jerusalem, has gone into Samaria, a place that he would have avoided before, and is praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. This is post-spirit Peter, right? Doing things he wouldn't have chosen to do, inviting the Holy Spirit in places he might not have chosen to invite him. Now, when they had testified the spoken word, uh, testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So he's continuing now. He didn't stop there. He continued to many of the villages. Again, not something he would have chosen, but the Spirit invited him. He was following the leading of the Spirit. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Did I say something else? No. No, I'm about to say. I'm just messing with you. I was like, what did I say? Yeah. Some, oh, in some area. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. They had peace. They were being built up. Right? There had just been persecution. Fear could have been the predominant theme. Instead, it was peace and being built up, not torn apart. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, and then we find all these places that he continues to go. This guy, this this rock upon which the church will be built is now going into all the world and doing amazing things like Aeneas, who was bedridden for eight years, was no longer paralyzed after Peter's visit. Dorcas was dead. No longer dead. Now, at this point, many could assume Peter had arrived, right? Because he's had this beautiful character arc, he's worked through some of his things, and now he's doing miracles, raising people from the dead. That's pretty big, so he's good, right? (laughs) I told you we'd come back to the Gentile story. Right? So Samaritans were one thing. At least there is this connection with Israel. You kind of have Jewish, have Gentiles. So there's kind of, we can pull some things. But Gentiles? Oh, God, you're asking too much. You remember, we found him on the rooftop. And the vision came down. God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, by no means, Lord. Ha <laughs> ha, you can't fool me. By no means will I do that. No, I will not. Have we seen this before? Yeah. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go, that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, who had just said to him, You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Took Jesus aside. Hey, Jesus, come here for a second. And rebuked him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus wasn't having that nonsense. He turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whew. 
You are the rock upon which I will build my church. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Thank goodness for the Spirit. If it was up to Peter, his mistakes could have cost everything. It wasn't up to Peter. It wasn't up to Peter. The Spirit worked. But we see this boldness, this tendency to rebuke when he didn't agree, to push back because he knew better. Ah, Jesus is mistaken. I know better than Jesus right now. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So the spirit comes to him and says, through a vision, kill and eat, Peter. No, absolutely not. I know what's right. I know what's best. I have solid theology. No, I'm right. You're wrong. And there's this boldness. Now, fortunately, the spirit knew what the spirit had to do to get Peter on board. So we went through this before. Spirit started with Cornelius, even before the vision. Started working on some stuff. Talking to Cornelius, said to send some men, go find this guy named Peter. He's at this certain place. He gave Peter the vision thrice, right? Not just once, not just twice. Three times, the Spirit did the same thing. The same thing. The same thing. That repetition was needed to break through Peter's stubbornness. The Spirit had Cornelius' men arrive at that moment. Oh, that's a coincidence. Who are those guys? Right after I come out of this weird vision. The Spirit then told Peter directly, go with them without hesitation. So the Spirit's doing thing after thing after thing because the Spirit knows how hardened this sin was. The Spirit knew how hardened this was within Peter. And so since the Spirit knew that, the Spirit knew how many things needed to be done in order to break through. Because he needed it. He was still in this place and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is, right, for a Jew to associate with you or to visit anyone of another nation. Like, you know this, right? So, like, what I'm doing here is, like, you know, I'm kind of making, I'm doing something big here and being here. You know that, right? Like, he's still got this understanding locked in his head. But, but God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or, common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So why, why'd you send for me? <laughs> Why am I here? And so he's not completely there yet. He has enough awareness to be obedient to God that he followed the instruction. But he still doesn't get it. Like, okay, I'm here. Why am I here? <laughs> like, God, God made it clear I shouldn't like, avoid you. But, but why did you call for me? And then once he hears the other things the Spirit had done, he knew what the Spirit had done within him. And then he heard of all these other things the Spirit had done. Okay, <laughs> the Spirit's clearly doing something. Truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He's still not completely there yet, right? We should talk about this too. While Peter was still saying these things. So Peter still had this whole thing that he laid out that he was going to say. And the Spirit worked before Peter was done. It wasn't about Peter. It was about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, 
Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They are amazed. In other words, they did not expect that to happen. They did not expect the Holy Spirit to fall. You're not amazed if something happens that you expect to happen, right? That doesn't amaze you. It's like, oh yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Right? If Peter really understood the power of the Spirit and the role of the Gentiles in the redemptive plan for humanity, he wouldn't have been amazed that it happened. He would have been like, that's the Spirit, right? Yeah, I told you. They're amazed because they didn't expect it to happen. So the Spirit is breaking through to Peter, breaking through to Peter, breaking through to Peter, showing him that there was some misalignment and showing him also, and yet you are a chosen vessel. So then Peter goes to Jerusalem. He's criticized. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. He remembers the words of Jesus. He remembers these things that had happened. But Peter hasn't arrived yet. We're seeing the, all, this amazing growth, this amazing character arc. But Peter is still a man. You're going to hear about Paul. Again, we come back to this often, is I do not understand what I do, or what I hate to do, I do. Like Peter is still growing. He's still learning. He is still journeying towards God, as all of us are. There's disagreement about when this passage happens, if it happens before or after the Council of Jerusalem, and there's implications either way, but it's still useful. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him. This is Paul talking in Galatians. I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter, for all that he has experienced, this is after the whole sheet thing, after Cornelius, because he did not eat with the Gentiles before. So the fact that he's eating with them now means it's after that. So he has been confronted by the Spirit. He has seen the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles. He is there, whether it's before or after the Council of Jerusalem, doesn't really matter because he should know better. And yet, what does he make his decision off of? Fear. For fear of the circumcision faction. Fear of loss of reputation. Fear of criticism. Fear of persecution, maybe. Fear drove his decision. Not love, not uh, a sensitivity to the Spirit, because what he should have been doing is continuing to eat with the Gentiles. We talk about how God's doing things beyond us, right? We've talked about this often, that what God's doing in this DBS for you isn't just for you. It could actually be for far beyond that. It works the other way, too. When we make decisions opposed to God, it doesn't just affect us. It can have impacts beyond us. Peter is a leader. People are watching him. We are all leaders because there is somebody watching us. Maybe it's a younger sibling. Maybe it's somebody who knows we're Christians and kind of want to see what it's like. There are always people that are watching us. We are providing leadership, even if we don't have disciples under us. We're providing leadership. Peter was an overt leader. And what do we see happening? 
Other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. What else do we see happen? Barnabas was led astray. The same Barnabas that went into Antioch and was so blown away by the Spirit working in the Gentiles that he went and found Paul and said, come on, like come to Antioch, see what's happening. They reported it back to Jerusalem. They stayed there for a year in Antioch, watching the Spirit work. Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I might have put this verse in there. I don't know if I did or didn't, but if I did, it'll come back later and that's okay. But the Apostle Paul talks about running the race. And he talks about not that I have run the race, not that I have arrived, but I continue to run, right? We want to arrive, like we want to be set, we want to be experts. Uh, experts. We, we don't want to think that we could have a moment like this where we make a pretty significant misstep. But we will. We are human. We're going to have moments where our humanity is going to misalign us with the invitation from God to follow him, to trust him. Unfortunately, the Spirit is there to meet us, but also we are called to function in community, and this is a beautiful yet hard example of that. Paul called him out to his face. It doesn't say, but I want to believe it was a Spirit-led condemnation that Paul sensed in his spirit that Peter needed to be called out in front of everyone. And that Peter was able to receive it because it was spirit-led. So there is an importance in community around accountability. When we have moments where we're lacking humble introspection, the spirit may use community to realign us. And so this is the journey we're seeing with Paul. But the good news is, is that the Spirit continued to work. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Again, we don't know if this is before or after that condemnation from Paul. But what we see here is he's recognizing that there are these yokes that we're placing on ourselves, on others. And there's this shifting that's happening in his heart. So he's growing. He's learning. He's deepening in wisdom and understanding and knowledge. May your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. This is what's happening in Peter. And leads him to a place where he is now positioned to go on these missionary journeys, to be an ambassador of Christ, to represent Christ in places that he may never have traveled before. To Samaria, to Lydda Caesarea. He goes back to Jerusalem, but really just to report before he's sent back to Antioch, Corinth, Rome. And then we get to First and Second Peter. This is where Rome is being written. Peter experienced hardships. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Like, sit with that for a second. This wasn't just some guy. Like, Stephen was important, and that hurt. 
But this was James, the brother of John. James, who he had a deep brotherhood with, killed with the sword, and the Jews were rejoicing. So what must have been going on internally within him? What pain, what mourning must he have been feeling? Like when we talk about hardship, it's not just the persecution. There's internal stuff we have to wrestle with. And I imagine most of us in this room have had moments where that's what the hardship looked like. Not physical attacks, but deep emotional pain, hurt, fear, longing. And then he's arrested. Is he going to be killed by the sword too? Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Come on, let's go. Let's go. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So get dressed. Let's go. We're not staying here. Grab your stuff. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was still in the prison cell, seeing like a vision, just like the sheet falling down. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, well, now I'm sure that that Lord sent an angel to me and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That wasn't a vision. God sent an angel to actually save me. Whew. What in the world? Like, this is a powerful moment, right? He's facing hardship, and now he's experiencing God actually delivering him. What deliverance felt like. Uh, I didn't list this in here, but what's really funny is in, yeah, I thought it was in here, but it's not. Um, he then goes to a house where Mary, uh, John's brother and Mary, hold on a second. Mary, the mother of James, no, of John and James. Anyways, they're at a house <laughs> with family of James who had just been killed and they're praying for Peter. We don't know exactly what they're praying. Are they praying for his release? Are they praying for boldness? I don't know. But whatever they're praying, they don't expect him to knock at the door. They don't believe it when it happens, right? And so it kind of makes us wonder, like, what were they expecting as they prayed? What was their expectancy? What were they hoping for? And then what did the Spirit actually do as a result of their prayers? Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go to wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. So again, Jesus has told him, you're going to die. And this is the manner in which you're going to die. It's not old age after living a long life as a good teacher. You're going to be led where you do not wish to go. Now, early church tradition suggests that after the great fire of Rome in 64 AD, Emperor Nero blamed it on the Christians. Now, some say it was actually Nero who started the fire. Some say whoever started the fire, Nero didn't necessarily believe it was the Christians, but he wanted to use that as an excuse to persecute the Christians. Either way, 
persecution increased against Christians. One of his acts on the Deus Imperium, on his 10th anniversary of ascension, which is something they celebrated, they celebrate the annual day when they are ascended to the throne. He normally celebrated his with bloodshed. That was just his style. Let's celebrate with a lot of bloodshed. Let's grab, gather some Christians. One of the ways that the early church decided that they showed that on the 10th anniversary was to crucify Peter. Uh, according to the apocryphal Acts of Peter, he was crucified head down. Origin attests, Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards as he himself had desired to suffer, counting himself unworthy to suffer the same way as Jesus. Eusebius and Jerome also say the same thing. We don't know for sure exactly what happened to Peter. But there are many who believe that he didn't want to be compared to the stature of Jesus. He didn't want to be crucified in the same way because it was his way of understanding in humility who he was and who Jesus was, his way of honoring Jesus. But regardless of how he died, we know that he died because of his decision to follow Jesus, because of his decision to allow the Spirit to work within him. It cost him, but it was worth the cost to him. He was ready. He was willing. When we think about Paul's leadership, Jesus, again, said, you're going to be the rock, your Cephas, Petras, upon which this church will be built. The pillars of the early church were considered to be Peter, James the Just, the brother of Jesus, and John the Apostle. And when Peter started going on these missionary journeys, that positioned James to take on more of a leadership role. This is why you see in the Council of Jerusalem, James is the one who says, I've made a decision, not Peter. Because Peter had been going on these missionary journeys that allowed James to step into this leadership space. But he was still a leader. He was still considered a pillar of the church. And uniquely so, for Peter was probably, in fact, in effect, the bridge man who did more than any other to hold together the diversity of the first century Christianity. James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, the two other most prominent leading figures in first century Christianity, were too much identified with their respective brands of Christianity at least in the eyes of Christians, at the opposite ends of this particular spectrum. This is James Dunn showing that Peter is uniquely positioned to not be on the extremes, but to be able to bridge these understandings of Christianity. And it's interesting what they describe here we see today. They were too much identified with their respective brands of Christianity, at least in the eyes of Christians at the opposite ends of this particular spectrum. We see that today and how important that these bridges can be, how God can actually position people to serve as these bridges, these peacemakers, uh, these connections to allow unity to happen. So that's Peter, right? There's a lot more we could say about Peter. But what we see is in Acts, this beautiful story, this beautiful character arc, this beautiful journey from being just a fisherman who was just living the life that he was told he was supposed to live, to living a life that was abundantly more than he could ask for or imagine, to protecting his life, to being willing to die for the sake of the cross. Like this is, this is a beautiful story that isn't just about some person that we say a cool story. This is relevant for us. There are things that we can pull from Peter that are relevant to who we are, to how we function, to what we're capable of. Because Peter was incapable of so much that we actually see him do. And so whatever we think our incapacities are, bless you, whatever we think we our incapacities are, the Spirit is capable of abundantly more. 
So that brings us to First and Second Peter. But before we go there, is there anything anyone wants to say or ask or comment about what we just talked about, Peter? I don't want to rush past Peter. It also gives me an excuse to drink some water. Thoughts, comments, questions? You said there's not easy scripture all this summer. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that gives me and they all be okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's important, right? Like, because for some reason we do have this default, like, oh, Christians are supposed to be soft and quiet and, and if someone's operating in the kind of boldness that peter had it's like oh i don't know but we are fearfully and wonderfully made like there are things that we're invited to like meekness and compassion and this that and the other but i think we make broad sweeps of what those things mean and look like and we are actually equipped in uniquely beautiful ways to function but the key is that we're not operating out of our personalities. We're giving our personalities <laughs> over to the spirit and saying, use this as you will, remove what needs to be removed. Here I am. But yeah, it is an encouraging thing when you, when you've, when there are elements of your own personality that you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And then you see it in scripture, you're like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> Anything else? Cool, cool, cool. Let's talk about First and Second Peter. So again, that book that I shared with you, it's a lot of pulled out of that to give us this quick hit of specifics. And we could spend a lot of time diving into all these. We'll dive into some of them. So authorship, the, the, they claim to be written by Peter. They, they say in there, it's Peter that's writing it. Early church tradition ascribes them to Peter, but there are some scholars that question this because they're like, ah, but wasn't he uneducated, possibly illiterate? So how did he write this? Uh, I don't understand how he could write. Like the wording of this, the, the, the mastery over language in these, that does, I don't see an untrained fisherman being able to communicate like this. Some address this by saying that he dictated to Silas. We see in 1 Peter 5.12, there's a comment about that. Second Peter's authorship is questioned even more. The reality is, as we talked about a couple days ago, there's a lot that it's hard for us to know for sure around authorship and dates. And so we have to take some things as a great, with a grain of salt. We have to move forward with what we have, but we can still glean things, pull things. Uh, we just operate with a humility and understanding that there may be things that we don't know or don't fully understand. Humility is so important to this because what we will find is there are some scholars that lack humility and they say definitively, nope, it was Peter. Nope, it could not have been Peter. And that can end up being unhelpful at best, destructive and disunifying at worst. So in this context, we, we don't actually fully know who authored it, but for our purposes, we're going to lean into the Petrian authorship. We're just going to assume Peter wrote these. Or at the very least, some say it was a disciple of Peter that was pulling from Peter's teachings and basically being reflective of what Peter might have said. We're going to lean in. We're going to lean into it with humility and understanding. Uh, the date, most likely 64, 65 from Rome for both of these books. Jews often, Jews and Christians often referred to Rome as Babylon, a place of exile. So 
It doesn't explicitly say, I am Peter writing from Rome, but it talks about Babylon, being in Babylon. And so some say that's Babylon is Rome. He's, he's in Rome. If it was written by a disciple other than Peter, then some say it's actually later than that date. The audience. First Peter? It's debated, <laughs> but modern scholars say it's primarily Gentile believers. It's focused on the five provinces in the northwest quadrant of Asia Minor, so modern Turkey. Which, by the way, they're, they're trying to change the pronunciation of the name. Turkey, did you hear about this? Is anything? Tur Turkia? Based on the proper spelling of it, because Turkey also has associations with... <laughs> and they want to they not have unhelpful associations. Yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger and turkeys. Second Peter, it is clearly for a specific group, but it's unclear for whom it is written. The content, first Peter, is based around encouragement. And as they undergo suffering, Peter helps them know how to respond and live lives worthy of their calling. And second Peter, this reads like a farewell speech. He calls out the danger of false teachers and encourages further growth and perseverance. Depending on this, when this is written, it may have been just before he was killed. So, we'll start off with 1 Peter. You get your salutation, a bereka, a blessing of God. The call to holy living is God's people. The call particularized in various pagan settings. The call generalized in the face of hostility. Conclusion, suffering, hope, and Christian conduct. And then final greetings. This is all that we're seeing here in 1 Peter. And the emphasis, this is how Fee and Stewart put it, suffering for the sake of righteousness should not surprise us. Believers should submit to unjust suffering the way Christ did. Christ suffered on our behalf to free us from sin. God's people should live righteously at all times, but especially in the face of hostility. Our hope for the future is based on the certainty of Christ's resurrection. Remember these themes, folks. The spirit is real and at work. The good news is for all and to all the world, and the invitation is to be a unified church. So when it kicks off, we get, starting in chapter one, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So if you read this out of context and you're reading about the elect exiles, it's, who is this to? Is this to ethnically Jewish believers who were exiled? Or is this to Gentile believers? Because this language feels very Old Testament, right? This foreknowledge, elect exiles, dispersion, that evokes an Old Testament understanding of the chosen people, which is powerful if the audience is for Gentile Christians. Because where there could be this separation because of the tension between Jews and Gentiles, this is bringing them in. Exiles also evokes the Old Testament stories where we see the Jewish people in exile. But in this case, if it's Gentile Christians, they're exiles because they are, not, they are in, not of the world. And then foreknowledge. Gentile Christians were not an accident, an afterthought, or an aberration. 
God had always chosen them. They had always been a part of the plan. There was a foreknowledge. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, when you don't know who the audience is, this can be a tricky one because the first part, makes it sound like, oh, this is, I mean, this is definitely to Jewish Christians, right? Like a chosen race, a royal priesthood, like that's very Jewish language. But then it says, once you were not a people, well, the Jewish people were a people. So maybe it's the Gentiles because they weren't a people, but now they, they are God's people. They weren't God's people and now they are. Okay, so, but then you get to uh, later, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Well, I mean, wait, it says among the Gentiles. So this has to be Jewish Christians, right? Because it's saying, when you're with the Gentiles, but maybe it's saying to the Gentile Christians, it's referring to Gentiles as still the other nations, the non-Jewish nations who don't know the ways of God and are going to look to you as Gentile Christians for what that means, right? So this has confused scholars. This has been tricky for scholars, but this is what Scott McKnight says. There is no passage in the New Testament that more explicitly associates the Old Testament terms for Israel with the New Testament church than this one. These terms, which were very much Old Testament terms, the priesthood, all these things are being brought into the understanding of the New Testament church. So if this is for ethnically Jewish believers, it reminds us that Christianity has important roots in the Jewish story. And if this is for Gentile believers, it emphasizes an important understanding of God's people. That it's not just the chosen people of the Old Testament. God's people are a new, larger chosen people. Now, this, there's, there's weeds we can get into with this that we won't, because it would take up the entire rest of the time. Uh, because it starts to press into, then what do we do with Judaism? Does this replace Judaism? How do we understand this? What, what's going on? This is why scholars continue to argue. But this is why we're pressing in saying, but what does this mean for our context now, for our understanding now, for who we are as believers? How do we take this word that is God-breathed and understand it for our lives? First, Peter likes to focus on suffering. As we talked about, Peter himself suffered a lot, right? In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the this, they were, they were told that they are born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that cannot be destroyed or ruined, and are guarded by God's power. That is the this. That's what they get to rejoice in, even though, even though, while those things exist, there are various trials. 
Now remember, I emphasized the emotional trials that Peter had faced. A lot of times when we read these passages, we only think of the physical trials that they were facing. They were facing various trials. So they were facing external threats. They were facing internal warring. They were facing disunity. They were facing false teachers. There were various trials that they were facing, being hit on all sides. And the question was, what is the genuineness of their faith? Now, I love that that word is you, genuineness. Not necessarily, how faithful are you? Because then, I mean, how many times in our lives have we felt like, I feel like I have little faith, if any. Genuineness is a different word. Are you faking your faith, or is it authentically you trying to have faith? Because even if it's a little faith, if it's genuine, that's faith. If you're doing these big displays, but it's fake, it's for show, it's for your own purposes, I don't care how big that is, it's not going to have the same power as the tiniest faith, faith of a mustard seed, right? It's the faithfulness, the genuineness of your faith. And it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. What is this for? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We see suffering as a barrier or counter evidence of positive progress and salvation. For us, suffering is a sign that something's gone wrong. Suffering is a sign that we're not in the right place or that God's not working. And it's definitely a sign that we're not going in a positive direction. Suffering can never be us going in a positive direction. No, no. So when we see this, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, we have to ask ourselves, what does the salvation of your soul require? In other words, can suffering stop the salvation of your soul? Like, can, can God be working on the salvation of your soul, but then suffering happens and it stifles it? No, like if God's working out the salvation of your soul, suffering cannot hinder that. Suffering can't hinder that. Well, then we can flip it around. Well, then does the salvation of your soul need to be sorted by any, supported by anything? In other words, in order to have the salvation of our soul, do we also need to have comfort? Do we also need to have security? Do we also need to have reputation? Because that's how we operate, right? For this big, abundantly more that God has for us, we also need to have comfort and security and reputation. No, the salvation of your soul does not need any of these other things. So it can't be stopped by anything, and it doesn't need to be propped up by anything. That's why we don't have to be afraid of suffering. I have been sitting with this topic of suffering for a while. I mentioned that I have a podcast called Where Did You See God? The last three seasons of the podcast have been themed, and they were not themes that I would have chosen, and they were not themes that I wanted to do, but God invited me into it, and I've learned when God gives an invitation, a smart thing to do is to trust him and not your own thinking. So the first one, a couple years ago, I felt the sense that God was inviting me to create a space for people to process issues they had with God or with the church or with Christianity. Now, as a Christian podcast host, that does not sound fun. <laughs> hey, tell me your qualms with Christianity. Tell me why you're mad at God. God, what are you inviting me into here? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want this. I'm a, I'm a peacemaker at heart. I don't want arguments. I don't want debate, but I trusted God. And it was a beautiful nine-episode season. My first guest was sharing some hard things that he had experienced in church. And he stopped. And I'm like, that's not the end of his story. So, you know, when you're a podcast host, you learn how to facilitate dialogue and prompt people in. And 
And so I'm like, well, okay, yeah, that's hard. And I mean, it sounds like, you know, maybe you're still with the church, but like you're still figuring out what needs to happen. He's like, oh, no, I'm an atheist now. And I'm like, oh, he's like, am I your first atheist on your God podcast? I'm like, yeah. He's like, cool. And then we kept having a conversation. And it was, it was an amazing conversation. And what I realized is God wasn't calling me to fix people, to tell them the answers, to turn them from atheism. God was calling me to create a space for them to process these hard questions because as a church, we are bad at making space to ask those hard questions. If somebody is wrestling with doubt, you better not bring that out for anyone to hear it because that's, that's your problem. Like a good Christian doesn't doubt. A good Christian doesn't question God. A good Christian doesn't get angry at God. To which we could say, I guess the psalmist had issues with God then because they often questioned God. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a question of God right there. Like, we're bad at creating space. The second season was a season focused on the concept of healing from miraculous recoveries to unanswered prayers and how we can see God in the midst. I felt a sense that God was inviting me to interview my friend, uh, Adam, who had uh, nearly lost his eyes, not just his eyes, but his eyes altogether. And God miraculously healed him. And I had the sense that God was inviting me to hear his story about healing. And so I reached out, he was game for it. And then another friend found out and he's like, well, I've got healing stories too. And my gut response was, I just wanted to do one episode on healing because healing is confusing. Healing is controversial. You get 10 Christians in a room, they're going to have different thoughts on what healing is. Does healing still happen? How much faith you need to have for healing to happen? What you should pray for, what you shouldn't pray for. Should you take medication? Is that you're not trusting God? Right? Like all these questions. God, I don't want to step into that. What are you pushing me into? But okay, God. And what was beautiful is through a series of events that was clearly God at work, what I intended to be one episode turned into 51 episodes that led all the way up over the course of a few months into January or February of this, of this year. And beautiful, beautiful stories that more often than not weren't miraculous healings. The things weren't fixed. And yet, people were discovering a deeper understanding of God. Now, after 51 episodes, doing this solo, doing all the different roles, I was exhausted. And I'm like, all right, God, that was great. I'm so thankful I'm taking a break after this. Also, I've got a DBS coming up that I got to teach for, and I've got kids at home, and I've got this, that, and the other, and I've got, and I've got, and I've got. So I got to take a break from these recordings for the podcast. And God said, that's funny. Hey, check out this email that I told someone to send you. A friend of mine emails, and they felt like God, she felt like God had invited her to be publicly transparent about some suffering she had experienced. And she knew I did a podcast. She's like, I don't know if it would fit with yours. But at the very least, you may know people like connections, ways that I could get the story out. And I had been turning down guests because I was about to take a break. And I felt a clear sense that God was saying, you need to record this conversation. So I'm like, all right, cool. I'll record it. And then like I'll hold on to it until after my break. Ten minutes into the conversation, I'm like, all right. And you can hear me saying this in the episode. All right, I'm going to call it now. I feel like God's invited me to do a season focused on sitting and suffering, which sounds incredibly daunting. Like... A whole season forcing people to sit in suffering. And yet, these have been incredibly hopeful conversations. They, uh, I don't know how many there are going to be, because it's not done yet, but I think it might cap at 20. I've recorded 19 conversations. I don't know how many of them I've actually been able to edit. I've got seven or so that are pending, because I had to push pause, <laughs> because, but I recorded them. 
But it's been beautiful to step into this space of sitting and suffering because we don't like to do that. We don't like to talk about suffering. Think about Job and his friends. Their love for Job led them to be willing to go and sit with him for a certain span of time, but then they kind of hit their limit. And then they kind of had to call him out like, Job, this is kind of your fault. Like, why don't you just own God? Why don't you just do this? Why don't you, is, is it your sin that did this to you? Like they start poor. We struggle with sitting pe- with people in suffering. When somebody's experienced a loss, we'll throw out platitudes. Like the worst is if somebody lost a child or had a miscarriage. You know, God just wanted, wanted your baby in heaven with him. Like we, my wife and I had miscarriages. That, that hurt when people said that. It's like, I don't want your platitudes. I just want you to sit with me. Don't try to fix my situation. Don't try to give me answers. Like, I, I am not in a place where I even want answers right now. I'm struggling. I just want somebody to walk with me through it. Like, this is what I found has been a recurring theme in these episodes. Is when I, when I asked the question, what would you tell someone that's in a similar space as you were? So many of them said, you're not alone. You're not alone. And so we have these passages where Peter is recognizing the suffering he's experienced, but now he's recognizing that those that he has invited to walk with them on this journey, they are now suffering as well. And he wants them to know, you're not alone. Don't be surprised by this. Jesus told me that we're going to have trouble in this world. Like this is to be expected. And so you don't have to be afraid of this. Yes, this hurts, but you are not alone. And it's not by your own power that you're going to get through this. He emphasizes this understanding of suffering. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So what, what is he meaning by this? Well, first, he wants us to understand timing. Sometimes suffering is as hard as it is because it goes longer than we think it should. All right, God, like I was trying to seek you. This bad thing happened. Then I prayed and you didn't fix it. And then a week passed and a month passed and a year passed and five years passed and 10 years passed and this this suffering is still happening. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Future tense. God has perfect timing, but it's not necessarily the now that we want it to be. It's this will be. It's, it will. It will. There's a promise, but it will be. It's coming. Ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, the futile ways that you inherited. Like Peter, we talked about, had some ignorance within him that he was conforming to when he was called to speak to the Gentiles. And so he recognizes the danger of our former ignorance, of our former ways of thinking. Do not conform to that. Recognize that we do have ignorance within us. Recognize it so we, that we don't unintentionally conform to it. We have to be set apart. You shall be holy for I am holy. And it's not set apart because of rules, but it's a right understanding of reality, right? It's, it's kind of like when you're going through life, there are times when there are rules in place that seem kind of pointless. It seems like a silly rule, right? You ever had that kind of moment? And so then it's hard to really follow it. And then there are other rules that feel really natural, like do not murder. I assume most of us in this room have no qualms with that one. Like that just feels natural to us, right? If we're basing this set-apartness on just a rule understanding, then we're going to get tripped up when something does or doesn't make sense to us. This isn't about 
setting rules. It's about a right understanding of reality. A passage that's going to come up often comes up in here is all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass that fades away, that withers. That the things that we're holding on to now, our understanding, the things that we're pursuing, the things that we're avoiding, all that's going to pass away. So there it is, an internal mindset. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So if there's something we should hold on to, maybe it's the eternal thing. Not the things that are going to wither and fall. So in this suffering, Peter's giving us an invitation. He invites us to put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. I mean, this, this seems like they should kind of get it. But the fact that he is having to explicitly say this to this body of believers indicates that they were slipping into it, that they weren't putting it away. Those are big words. Like I, if I ask each of you, hey, how often do you engage in malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? Most of us like, would probably want to be like, I don't think I do that. At least not often. Like I, I, but he's inviting us, be aware of how we can slip into these things. Put them away. Name them for what they are and put them away. Choose not to operate in malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Because this will protect us from falling in the midst of suffering. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Every one of my kids, when they were infants, let us know when they wanted milk. <laughs> they longed for it and would not stop the vocal representation of that longing until we gave it to them. Are we like that for the spiritual milk? Are we crying out for God's spiritual wisdom? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. So there's this recognition to be like the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. We like that are living stones and we are built up together. I'm not my own individual house. I'm a stone along a stone along a stone being built up together for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And he also invites this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Most of us would not want to be a sojourner or exile. We, we long for a home and a place. But he recognizes that's who you are. So let's name it that you are sojourners and exiles. You are in and out of this world. In that space, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Because in your sojourning, in your exile, you are going to come into contact with these passions, these opportunities, these invitations to engage the passions of the flesh. And it's not that it's don't break that rule. It's that those things will wage war against your soul. That's why you need to avoid them. Not because bad, 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 but because of what it will do to your soul. If you make space for those things, abstain from them for the sake of your soul. And then we get into submission. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submission is a hard one. We're resistant to submission, right? And understandably, because there can be risk in it. Because let's talk about what we've already seen. When they submitted to the Jewish leadership, that led to imprisonment, led to beatings, led to murder. We talked about Nero who, to celebrate his Ascension Day, killed people. And this verse tells them to submit even to the emperor. 
sometimes there's unhealthy relationships that this names that we submit to and what happens in that. So this is an understandably hard one. There can be risk in submission. But let's talk about what submission is by looking at the antonyms. All right. The opposite of submission is defiance, disobedience, insubordination, rebelliousness, self-will, waywardness. And I think this is important because it helps to flesh out what we're saying when we say submission. Submission, and we're not saying do everything this person tells you. It's not operating in a spirit of defiance, not operating in a spirit of disobedience, not operating in insubordination, not operating in rebelliousness, not operating in self-will, not operating in waywardness, because even Peter at times didn't do what he was told to do. We command you not to speak in the name of Jesus. Uh, decide for yourself whether it's right or wrong, but we're going to follow God on this one. Because ultimately their submission was to who? God, right? So submission is hard because it's hard to understand what it means, but it's helpful to know the spirit in which we are being called to operate and the spirits that we are called not to operate in. And what if submission costs us? Well, what did Jesus say? He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Yeah, doing these things that Peter's inviting us to, to suffer and to submit, could cost us. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we are simultaneously free and invited to servitude. The Apostle Paul, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, was first invited to be a servant than a witness. We we're invited to be servants, not because we have no freedoms, but it's because of our freedoms we can serve others. What is this? Chessboard, right? So here's the interesting thing. Yes, it is a chessboard. It's a game called chess that has a lot of different pieces. Those pieces have different rules for how they operate, how they can move on the board. There is a specific goal that you have to accomplish that may mean some pieces you lose, some pieces you try to keep, but ultimately you're trying to get that king in checkmate, right? But I have a question. Uh, what is this? <laughs> it's a chessboard, but is it anything else? A checkerboard. <laughs> what? So. This is something that God brought to mind years ago that I've always been really grateful for because this is both a chessboard or it could be a checkerboard. And so often in life, we assume that something is a certain thing when it might be something different. So put it another way. What if in life, we're sitting there trying to play chess, but the game is actually checkers? There were all kinds of rules that were deciding how people should be operating. You do not let someone kill you. You do not put yourself at risk. You do not eat with Gentiles. You do not, you do not, you do not. You should, you should, you should. And the whole world is operating as certain pieces guided by certain rules for the certain goal. And how foolish would that look if you're playing chess, but the game is actually checkers? Here's the other thing. Anybody like playing chess? I raise my head, hand, but I, <laughs> I never play chess. For most of my life, it was actually intimidating for me because I, I did not feel good enough to play with anyone else. Now, if you know how to play chess and you're good at chess, it can be really fun. It can be really exciting. But if you don't, it can be really intimidating. 
So if you look at people in the world who look really successful and you're like, I don't have the skills they have. I don't have the knowledge they have. I can't thrive. I can't survive. I'm just a fisherman. They're teachers of the law. Right? But if the game is checkers, then the smartest person can be playing by all the rules of chess and be missing the whole point. So this is the invitation we're being given into, given to with submission, with suffering, with so much we read in Acts is, hey, you thought the game was this, but this is actually the game. But it goes even further. Because even in that, what's the purpose of playing any game in our minds? To win, right? That's the purpose, to win. That makes logical sense, except that's but one purpose of playing a game. Think about it this way. If I'm trying, I try to teach my son chess, right? And the rules of playing chess are you do certain things in order to win the game. You're trying to get checkmate. That is the goal of playing chess, to put the other person in checkmate, except if you're a father teaching a son. Because what would happen if I played the game of chess normally with a child who's just learning to play? Right? Break his little heart. Gonna demolish him. Bam! Bam! You lost again. Bam! You lost again. You're bad at this. No. For the father, the goal of playing the game was to train up the child in the way he should go, to fellowship with him, to be in relationship with him, to have fun. Think of two people in a park. They meet every Tuesday at Central Park to sit at one of those chess boards to play chess, that they might not be doing it to win a game of chess. Even if that is part of their desire, it's really for that connection. This is our time each week to connect, to relate, to talk. So even our understanding of why a game is played is off. So how much more in life? Our understanding of life is to live, to survive, to not hurt, to not suffer, to not be told what to do. What if we got the game wrong? Remember, Peter rebuked Jesus for not playing the game right. Jesus, we can't go to Jerusalem, buddy. We've got to reclaim Israel. You'll die if you go to Jerusalem. You just said it yourself. You're playing the game wrong. And then he dies. They're downhearted because Jesus lost the game. Did Jesus lose the game? No. Jesus wasn't playing their game. He was immensely victorious. He actually won the game more than they could ever understand. Death has lost its sting. The victory is his, like eternal victory. Like he has won the game for eternity. He wasn't playing their game. It took him a while to get that. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Our former ignorance will tell us what game we're playing and how to play it. And we will align ourselves with that. We'll play by the rules of whatever the game is. And Jesus has been trying to tell us, the spirit within us has been trying to tell us, God has been telling us through all the scripture you've been reading, that's not the game. That's not the game. Let me tell you what the game actually is. Let me tell you how you actually play the game. Just like checkers versus chess, it's a lot easier than you think because you don't actually have to be good at it. You don't actually have to know what you're doing. I can give you the words. I can give you the capacity. I can give you the power. I've done it and I've done it and I've done it. I can do it again. That's the cheat code. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, A, B, start, boom. Cheat code's in. Now you have superpowers because of the Spirit. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. So again, we can hear all that say, yes, okay, cool, all right, I'm on board. 
But hold on a second. The emperor? Peter, do you know who the emperor is? Nero's been killing people. If we assume that this is written around 64 AD, we must acknowledge that Emperor Nero was brutally persecuting Christians in this time, starting with the great fire around Rome in 64 AD. And imagine reading this in general, right? In, in general, you read this and it's hard, right? But then imagine you're reading this knowing that per brutal persecution was happening and potentially Peter himself has been killed. Because these letters took time to get places. So whether you heard it and then you like thought about it later or it came to you after Peter's death, Peter may actually have been killed by the emperor that then you're reading him say, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Be subject to the person who murdered me. Submit to a murderer. <laughs> the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. <laughs> for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We're not playing the game right. We're not understanding the game right. God is wiser than us. We're foolishness. We keep trying to play the game in our foolishness with foolish rules. Yes, it does not make sense to submit to a murdering emperor. Except it doesn't make sense to us because the game we're playing is self-preservation, is reputation. But if the game is something different, then maybe the path there is something different. You know, there's a timely comparison here. During this time, the Jews longed to not be under Roman rule as they had when under other rules. Prophecies had said that there are going to be a people, that there's going to be freedom. They're awaiting this. Where's the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? No. Is this the Messiah? No. But the Messiah is going to come and he's going to save us and he's going to restore us. They're waiting for it. They're waiting for it. Many of the disciples anticipated Jesus being the one to take Jerusalem back and were confused when he loved his enemies and accepted death. Jesus, we were supposed to be restored. This is what Jeremiah 29, 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So even in the Old Testament, the game is different. Submit to your exile. Thrive in this space for the sake of the welfare of your place where you are exiled. But it gets even crazier. They're called to do this for 70 years. For I know the plans I have to, for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. We love to use this on an individual basis, don't we? I'm in a bad situation, but God knows the plans he has for me. He's, he's going to give me plans for welfare and not for evil to give me a hope and a future. Look, look, God does know the plans that he has for us. He does desire full life and abundant life for us. But think about when this was written. This was also after it was declared that for 70 years, they would be in exile. That's a lifetime. So 70 years means that someone might have been born when this happened or shortly after that gets to see the fruit of this, gets to see the welfare and not the evil, the future and the hope. But what about the people who heard this on the front end that were already adults, that were not going to live for 70 more years? This word was still true, but it wasn't for their individual lives. It was for their lives as a people. Right? The game is different than we think. It's not about our lives. It's not about our welfare. It's about something greater. And so the early Christians followed God's call to submit, not rebel against oppressive authorities. They followed this call, submit even to Emperor Nero. But the Jews, many of them revolted. You get the great Jewish revolt in 67, 66 to 73. Started in 66 with anti-taxation protests and attacks on Roman citizens. Governor Florus plunders the temple and arrests Jewish leaders. Conflict escalates. 
In 70, Jerusalem walls are breached. There's seven months of a brutal siege, much including the temple itself is destroyed. So by 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. Josephus said that 1.1 million were killed during the siege. 97,000 were captured and enslaved. There is a famine that many people who died in that 1.1 million died because of famine. Judaism severely was in, severely impacted. The priesthood and the Sadducees movement diminished. And there were more Jewish-Roman wars. Some of them decided not to submit to authority. They rebelled against it. And it didn't work. Because the game was not that. But the Christians, the Christians who did the weird thing and submitted to authority, something different happened. Remember I said the priesthood was diminished? But 2 Peter says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Christianity did not diminish because of that submission. Christianity did not diminish because of that suffering. No matter who, like Nero, tried to stop them, Christianity grew and thrived and deepened, and they became a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So as we think about submission, ultimately, no matter who it is, authority, servants, wives, husbands, ultimately we're submitting to God, which changes the power of the circumstances, that, the power that circumstances hold over our resolve. Because it may be hard to submit to someone that we think can hurt us, but if we're submitting to God, it doesn't matter what man can do to us. These invitations have their basis in love God and love others, the honoring of God and the blessing of others. And it allows us to have a witness. They may be one without a word. That in our submission, we don't have to say a thing. And people come to know who God is. Let me just see how much further I have on here. I might just stop. Oh, yeah. All right. We're going to stop here. We'll pick up with a little bit more on suffering. But for the sake of time, let's sit with this. Because all of us have experienced suffering in some way. We haven't experienced suffering in the way that Peter did. The way that this audience at First Peter did. But we know what it is to hurt and to fear and to struggle and to wrestle. And so these promises are for us as well.